everyone, we're on season five, episode 14, and I have Keith Richards with me from the Financial Vulnerability Task Force. Hi, Keith. Hi, Catherine. Um, today we're going to be talking about the Financial Vulnerability Task Force and what their goals are for advisors and consumers. This is the Practical Protection Podcast. So before we get into everything properly, Keith, how are you doing today? Have you got sunshine? Have you got a nice weekend planned? I'm great, Catherine. It's that the sun is shining outside and uh, looking forward to, uh, to a relaxing but busy weekend. Yes, it's always that, isn't it? It's relaxing but busy. It's one of those things I always think to myself, you know, it's going to be a lovely, a lovely relaxing weekend. And then obviously I remember I have three young kids and you think, no, it's, it's not going to be relaxing at all. It's going to be quite intense. <laughs> yeah. well, I think we're trying to catch up now on the fact that um, things almost feel like they've returned back to normal. So yeah, uh, lots more social events, a lot more family and uh, of course, lots of DIY that's uh, been left outstanding. Oh, oh, absolutely. Well, I was going to say, well, I say absolutely. I, I won't be doing the DIY. I'm, I'm that annoying person who starts the DIY project. And then I look at my husband and go, Alan, and then just I then go and waltz off and do something else while he then is left to, <laughs> to try and help and salvage whatever I've done. OK, <laughs> let's get straight into things then. So I think it's a good idea to start off, uh, Keith. I know that quite a lot of our listeners will, will know who you are. Um, but if you can give us a bit of background about yourself, please, and then how it is that you are now with the Financial Vulnerability Task Force? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I've spent um, pretty much most of my working uh, career in financial services uh, started over 40 years ago uh, in um, in traditional, as it would have been in those days, uh, insurance composite life companies. Uh, I've been in advised roles. Uh, I got onto the retail board for Royal London Group, was head of retail, uh, and then uh, also moved in to become a director, key director for Tenet Group uh, in the days when Tenet probably had nearer four or 5,000 uh, intermediaries under its various brands um, helped lots of businesses set up their own independent um, uh, IFA businesses uh, over that period. And just on the back end of 20, uh, or just as the retail distribution review was introduced in 2013, uh, I took on the role of CEO of the Personal Finance Society. So for many, they were slightly surprised. Um, given that um, I'd been around the market for some time and they couldn't quite work out why I'd moved to a professional body when um, they thought the professional body was just about qualifications and uh, that had all been done. Anyone who needed to, to be diploma had kind of happened. So, um, and of course, at that time, there was a, a large, uh, mainly most experts were predicting a, a 60% attrition rate as a direct result of uh, the regulatory reforms that we will refer to as the RDR. Uh, not least because, of course, the uh, abolition of commission and transfer to fee only. Uh, but I was never that sceptical. I, I had a lot of confidence and faith in the market. And um, I, I guess having a broad experience operating at executive level, both in composite life companies, major IFA businesses and networks, um, gives you a slightly different perspective on the market and um, often there's a lot of confusion about the dynamics of how big firms operate versus small firms uh, and of course the advice sector is made up predominantly of small firms so over 5,000 small firms probably on average size of about five employees per firm yeah. compared to of course if you take the life uh, life company sector then that's a smaller number of very large and often global companies with thousands of employees so the dynamics are very different, um, uh, but it's been a fa fascinating career because I've largely been at the heart of quite a number of the, uh, the reforms. I can go back to before regulation uh, was introduced to the sector. In fact, I was a committee member for the Association of British Insurers back in those days, which was sort of a pseudo-regulator for uh, the insurance sector. And in fact, uh, I was invited to do radio shows for BBC Cambridge uh, back in my very early early days in those days it was predominantly talking about uh, household claims motor insurance yeah. travel insurance and, and so on but of course savings and protection um, uh, and in particular retirement pensions were becoming a big thing uh, back in the uh, in the 80s so that that occupied a lot of my time so it's been a very broad journey how did I get to the 
Financial Vulnerability Task Force? Well, it was simple. Um, in the eight and a bit years of leading the Personal Finance Society, I think our profession has come on leaps and bounds. I saw a massive change uh, that PFS saw growth in membership. We saw massive levels of growth in engagement from members and indeed regulators and government. In fact, I've had the privilege of being invited by government to to been on quite a number of working parties. Um, I was only one of two from uh, industry, so to speak, that uh, was invited onto the government's uh, pension freedoms implementation uh, group. Uh, and, uh, and that gave me a lot of insights, but it also gave us an opportunity to raise the profile of professional advice, uh, not only to policyholders, uh, to, sorry, policymakers, governments, regulators, um, but also it did allow us to introduce some initiatives that went in front of the public because raising professional standards is no good if no one knows about it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and that was clearly a, a you know, key driver for me. Uh, we did something called the Pension Transfer Gold Standard. So I, I reached out to the uh, across sector from trustees to regulators to uh, even PI insurers to come together to come up with a common theme that would build public trust. And um, we launched then under the Pensions Advice Task Force, something called the Pension Transfers Gold Standard. Although over two thirds of firms with pension permissions uh, adopted the um, uh, effectively the charter that we created under that, it was kind of a bit too late because British still came along just shortly after. And of course, we all know the, the significant impact that British still has had on effectively tarnishing uh, the whole reputation of, of advice. So it's not just those caught up in it. Yeah, there's a general perception that anyone who transferred out of the safeguarded benefit was probably wrong. Uh, and that simply isn't true, but perception becomes reality. So we decided that um, the big focus that the regulator was, was turning their attention to was something called vulnerability. Now, we all obviously recognise through COVID that there's a lot of concern about mental health, mental well-being. Uh, and the, the, the varying degrees of vulnerability that, that we all face in life at different times. It struck me that the regulators talk about vulnerable customer, but actually vulnerable customer carries with it a bit of a stigma. So no one really wants to be considered a vulnerable mm. customer. And in fact, I've come across lots of financial planners who actually don't think they deal with vulnerable customers. Um, so it struck us that we needed to launch uh, a completely independent task force, so one that was not connected with any organisation, but one that could be adopted by any organisation. Uh, and it was about how we raise uh, the profile, share good practice, and start to create a community effect that addresses what the regulator sees as still underlying concerns about the way the market deals with people's vulnerable circumstances. So it's not just um, dealing with people who are vulnerable, so stereotypically those with, mm. for example, age-related cognitive impairment, those with, with evident disabilities. Actually, regulation for some time has been trying to address uh, and get this, the various sectors, whether insurance or financial uh, advice, to address vulnerabilities in a, in a more transparent way. Now, they've done that initially through Know Your Customer. Mm -hmm. uh, they've done that through... Um, TCF, treating customers fairly. Uh, last year, they launched their guidance, uh, their final rules on the expectations of how to deal with vulnerable customers. And of course, we're now uh, just grappling with um, the consumer duty. Now, all of those wrap into to one thing, and that's just how we, as professionals, as organisations, deal with consumers who know far less about what we do. In fact, hopefully the reason they come to us is because we're the experts. But by definition, anyone who goes to an expert and knows less than the expert is potentially vulnerable because they have no option but to trust what the expert is saying. And I think for us, it's just been very conscious of that. So the Vulnerability Task Force uh, was launched to create a consumer charter uh, and also to create um, a, a, a charter, sorry, a, a consumer guide and a, a charter which firms and individuals could adopt. Um, but I'd like to point out the really important part of this is the charter uh, has been created, which also has a logo that adopters can use to demonstrate their commitment 
to consumer TCF, etc. Um, it's not about talking about what the task force does. Actually, the charter enables firms and individuals to talk about what they do uh, and the firm or individual's commitment to how they deal with various vulnerable circumstances. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, that sounds incredibly important. I know over the last couple of years, I've been invited to do some speaking events about speaking about vulnerability. And I think I think a lot of the time people when they've been thinking about vulnerability, um, especially from probably quite led by a compliance background, I imagine, is generally being a case of, right, is this person age 60 or over? Right, if they're age 60 or over, and then there can sometimes be quite intense um things in place like you know well you must have a signed letter to say that they have cognitive ability to understand and I think it, it's one of those things that I think advice can sometimes get a bit confused by as well because you know obviously there are certain people who are obviously over the age of 60 who maybe don't have the cognitive function to really understand what's happening with their finances and then you can get other people in their 70s and 80s who are absolutely switched on and then on the other side of things you could have someone in their 30s who's not got the cognitive ability to be able to understand their finances and I think one of the things that I've been feeling for quite a while is that in some ways it mirrors what you were just saying then it's kind of like where in some ways where does vulnerability stop almost everybody has some level of vulnerability um you know an example you know it's um and, I, and I th- again, I think this is something where advisors can sometimes think, well, what do we do? Because, I mean, obviously, I talk quite a bit about vulnerable client registers and the processes that you would maybe take to make sure that you're monitoring and, and making sure that people are being looked after properly. And it's that kind of thing, like, so where do we draw the line sometimes? Um, because, you know, if somebody comes to us and they have a mortgage, but they don't have something like uh, life insurance in place or potentially income protection in place, then in a sense, they're financially vulnerable and the family's financially vulnerable because, you know, there's a huge liability there that might not get repaid if something happens to them on the mortgage side. And then if they're not well, then the home could be, obviously, the, the home could be at risk if they're unable to keep up the mortgage payments. So that there's so many aspects to it. And I think it's brilliant that there is this task force here to like really help educate the consumers and the advisors on what to do. And I, I know you mentioned that there's a charter and it's got nine key areas for firms to sort of like agree and uphold to sort of confirm that they're supporting uh, the Financial Vulnerability Task Force. Can you take us through these, please? Yeah, of course, absolutely. The, uh, I, I mean, I think that the really important thing to just re-emphasise based on what you've said is that um, vulnerability actually, as a word, tends to put... Um, a process or a requirement into a tick box category in particular a regulatory requirement is not it's what we deal with every day every single person that we deal with will have a vulnerable circumstance either now or in the future and very often both insurance and financial advice can help to mitigate vulnerable circumstances at various key stages in life so what we should remember is is that um, dealing with vulnerability isn't about just how we deal with people with identifiable vulnerabilities, such as age-related cognitive impairment. Actually, it's how do you deal with a 30-year-old who has clear saving objectives today, but actually may also have some objectives about life changes within two years. So their vulnerability is they're focused on dealing with an immediate need, but actually they will be unaware that if they have a life change that they're planning for, for example, family or or taking on a mortgage in two years' time, sustainability of their savings goal may be impacted. And that's where financial planners have to actually take that vulnerability into case. So many wouldn't consider looking at sustainability as addressing a vulnerability, but of course it is Mm -hmm. if you don't ask the questions about what the client's goals and objectives are and what their plans are for the, the immediate future to assess not just suitability and affordability of any recommendation, but also the sustainability and impact that other life-changing plans could have. So that's somebody who's perfectly cognizant, who's healthy, who in every way and sense uh, seems to be focused on the future. So, you know, how could they have any vulnerabilities? Um, But actually we all face them. So I think that's the really important part to say, Catherine, that for me me and the task force, actually we want to turn vulnerabilities into BAU. We want to turn it into business as usual and then translate it into language that's relevant to financial planners that helps to raise the the dial, if you like, uh, and deliver better outcomes. So it shouldn't be a tick box exercise. 
Uh, and I actually believe controversially that actually the better we are at dealing with regulatory concerns, uh, actually we're going to see an increase in need uh, in demand for the services that we provide. So ultimately, the, what's in it for me? Well, the better we become at addressing people's vulnerabilities, uh, the more business we're likely to see flow our way. Absolutely. I mean, um, I think a very clear one there is to say, well, at some point, all of us will retire, yeah. you know, and straight away, we've got a financial vulnerability. You know, we have to plan for these things. There's there's no way of escaping that. And um, And obviously, especially as well, if you look at all the statistics in terms of the likelihood of being diagnosed with certain health conditions now, it's it's phenomenal how much th these things are happening. So, you know, it isn't something that's, I agree with you, it isn't something that's out there for other clients that aren't your own. It's, it's everyone has to be, you know, has that potential and we should be looking at it. But yeah, I really can't wait to hear what the, the Charter's nine key uh, areas are. Absolutely. Um, so uh, the, the, it, it was really important for us to develop a, a Charter. We learned from past experience on, for example, the Pensions Advice Task Force. Um, to give people something to hang their hat on. So there's lots of firms that already do lots of great work around client vulnerabilities, et cetera. Um, and actually there's lots of advisors who do address vulnerability, but they may not all necessarily be conscious of it. So they haven't written down what they do. They just do it intuitively, instinctively, and professionally. Um, so it's kind of an unconscious behavior in the positive. But what is really important is to have something that gives you a track to run on. And the nine statements contained within our charter underpin the work of the Financial Vulnerability Task Force. And we expect that our supporters uh, will make a commitment to enact and actively support them. Now, the principles themselves, for example, principle one is we acknowledge that as our services often involve the application of specialist and technical financial knowledge, this places many clients in a position of dependency and as such imposes upon us a greater moral duty to act in the best interests and as a safe pair of hands, especially to those who find themselves in vulnerable circumstances. Now, it's an obvious statement. Many firms already would say, well, we abide by that. So the principle that all the remaining principles in the charter are there to help firms become more focused on probably what they already unconsciously do. Uh, and we found that firms that are, are a bit more advanced uh, actually adopt the charter because it's very aligned to what they all already done as, as a process or a commitment. Um, so the rest of the, the um, rather than go through all of them, uh, anyone can find them uh, on our website, the Financial Vulnerability Task Force website. Um, there's a tab, the charter. Uh, and of course, this is what we expect people to commit to. So it's, it also, it's, we've had feedback that it's really helpful because it has really helped to stimulate uh, some thought process of what the firm or the individuals already do, but hadn't consciously written it down in, anywhere. So uh, many firms have adopted the charter. They've actually printed it up, put it in a frame, and they've actually put it on their, uh, their office wall on their website as their adopted uh, charter, nine underlying principles about how they deal and treat their customers fairly. So again, we're slightly changing terminology. The charter is, is just allows firms and individuals to adopt something that allows the firm to talk about what they do. Not what we do, it's what they do. So again, the, the independence and impartiality is uh, the task force is a community interest company. All of the directors on the board uh, who are very varied and bring different experience in uh, are, are all pro bono, so there's no commercial interest. Uh, we have no intent on creating training or, or so that we can commercialize or monetize anything that we do. So everything we're going to do going forward will be working in partnership with uh, other professional organizations, signposting people to appropriate training, etc. So ours isn't about creating a commercial opportunity. Uh, ours is genuinely trying to galvanize the sector around a set of standards and indeed a charter that consumers through the badging that, that people can use, the logo. That, um, and I've seen it already at a number of events that I've been at where people have proudly ha had our logo uh, on their, uh, their slide deck as their commitment to raising professional standards. The whole principle is if we don't get things like that as a kite mark or a standard that we can all sit behind into the public space, then who knows? 
So we're all just, you know, five and a half thousand firms doing our own thing and it all gets very confusing. Uh, so we are trying to create something that is easy for firms, is vis becomes visible to consumers uh, because building public trust is often around dealing with a vulnerability about I don't know what to ask an advisor. Well, very often, if you create something that tells you what good practice should look like and how firms should be operating, uh, it makes it easier for the consumer to start to build confidence and trust uh, because we all feel about uh, a bit stupid asking what we think might be a stupid question when in fact there's no such thing as a stupid question there's often just stupid answers yeah no you're, you're completely right with that i was going to say as well we on our website we do have the uh, the the task force logo very proud on our website as well and yeah. uh, it's definitely something that we promote i know from um we talk about the website and everything on the website you do have some resources that are available for people to like help them understand things like scams and things like abuse coercion decision making and safeguarding i know we've kind of obviously um we've already said that in a sense everybody has some level of vulnerability either now or in the future but in terms of the things like the scams and the abuse and everything do, do we know kind of what the scale is of these issues? You know, how many people are, are, are quite vulnerable to this? Because I think we kind of think of, you know, I sort of like think, go back, start thinking about my grandparents who would suddenly trust anyone and anything that suddenly said something to them. But I, I imagine it's not just, you know, it, it's not just grandparents, is it? it is, it's so easy now to suddenly be faced with a scam. And, and I imagine that probably the majority of us are actually potentially vulnerable to that. Yeah, I, I mean, actually, uh, listeners might be absolutely shocked to learn that uh, last year, the UK, this is both firms and individuals, lost 137 billion to financial fraud. Oh, wow. It's 137 billion uh, to, to financial fraud last year. So it's become a massive issue, not, not least ironically, that where we now use the internet as a means to increase access. Of course, what it's also done is it's allowed scammers and crooks to also increase their access to consumers and relieve them of their hard-earned savings or, or, or assets. So, um, again, trying to create a safe pair of hands, working with the regulator and, and the government to find ways in which we can address and stop scams from happening. We, we've created with third-party specialist content some uh, references to Friends Against Scams, for example, uh, FCA's uh, Scam Awareness Initiative and, and guidance on what consumers can do or a reference point on which companies have already been identified. Um, but there's so much more we can all do uh, to, to address the issue that is going to carry on. Now, the sad thing is with scams, we often find as well that uh, the scammers are usually really easy to deal with. In fact, they're, they're often, uh, their websites are extremely professional. They often have links to uh, regulatory sites. They often warn you about not being scammed out of your money. So they've become really sophisticated and clever. Uh, and interestingly enough, there's been an increasing number of wealthier people, well-educated, uh, wealthier people who have increasingly fallen victim to scammers over the last two or three years. So it's a massive issue, uh, a massive issue for us because you know, in the past, it was probably people that wouldn't necessarily have fallen into a typical advised client category who were at risk of, of scams. Today is exactly the stereotypical uh, financial advisor uh, client bank who are, have increasingly become victims of financial fraud and scams in the UK. So massive issue that we all need to really focus on. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I, I know um, some of the things that I do sometimes, I do quite a lot of work with charities and, and partly what I do is try and, and obviously not saying it's, it's uh, going to protect absolutely everyone and everyone or that it answers everything, but, you know, I try and give them tips, you know, along the lines, you know, and to their members to sort of say, right, ask them for like their their regulatory references, you know, don't do anything on the call, go away, research them. Like you said, you know, try and research the website if at all possible. But as you say, they, they, even the websites can sometimes be, you know, a bit uh, a bit too good in a sense to, to spot sometimes. But, you know, there are steps, which it certainly is something that we, we definitely need to work on. I know for me, I, I, sort of like in the past, I've found that there's quite a few financial professionals that are really 
on top of spotting vulnerabilities as I say from our regulatory background you know we've always had it in a case of like the age of somebody would typically be something that would stand out and we are seeing um, more and more that it could be other things so you know vulnerability could be that there's um, someone that you love has passed away so that's obviously a vulnerability um, you know recognizing other areas like potentially as well sudden wealth so again if somebody has passed away have they had an insurance policy or investments pensions that are suddenly passing to someone else who's receiving a lot of money never had any idea what to do with that kind of level of money um the diagnosis of a severe illness you know things like economic abuse as well and um as i've said before like a lack of protection when it comes to uh, to income and not being able to work i suppose what's interesting to maybe hear from your point of view is you know what are the key steps that advisors can take because i mean there's as we said almost pretty much everybody has a vulnerability either now or in the future and what can advisors do and how can they potentially change their approaches or what steps should they take to be able to really try and identify where those vulnerabilities can be? Yeah, well, all of this is actually really timely because this is exactly where the, the FCA are going with uh, consumer duty. Um, it, it's, I think the simple answer is it's about increased conscious awareness. Um, rather than actually carrying on in an unconscious belief that we, we've always done the right thing because no one ever complains about us. Or in our 20 years of advising, you know, you only had one un upheld complaint. That isn't really what regulation and good outcomes is about. It's being conscious about the good things that we do. So the reason that we're often asked to test what we do to prove that our clients are happy with the service is because the absence of a complaint doesn't mean to say that people are getting good outcomes or they're happy with what you do. So it's incumbent upon all of us to be a bit more, you know, a lot more conscious and awareness of the responsibilities that we have and the duty of care that we have towards our clients. Um, what is really important though, it's easy to say those things. It's a really broad statement that we've just got to all be more conscious. The reason that we've created uh, a library now of guides is because we all sometimes it's easier it's sometimes easier to have a checklist on the kind of things that we should be doing because then it allows each firm and each individual to start to build on that just to use it as a foundation of something to point them in the direction to start thinking a bit more consciously so stimulating our thought if we think about the fact that you know when we typically go to a conference sometimes the content is really good uh, it all makes sense. Uh, I enjoyed the session, but actually it's the power of talking to a peer in the coffee break that brings it all alive uh, because often we're talking about real cases which actually give examples of certain circumstances. We've got to be a lot more conscious to do that. And I think, Catherine, we, we, uh, you mentioned things like um, uh, uh, Sudden Wealth. We've launched a paper on Sudden Wealth. We're providing a guide. In fact, one of our directors... Uh, was for eight years the exclusive uh, appointed advisor for NSNI's lottery winners and during that time uh, built mass uh, of experience on just how vulnerable people can be in such a positive scenario of winning a million pounds. Uh, not least, of course, um, the experience he came across of young people winning a million pounds and just how vulnerable they came to family members abusing their relationship and trying to relieve them of, of their winning. So financial advisors are increasingly seeing, we also launched a paper with the All-Party Parliamentary Group last year, uh, Professor Keith Brown, who sits on our uh, board, uh, kindly uh, contributed significantly to a paper on theft and fraud within families. Now, this is really interesting because when it was launched, lots of advisors started to tell me that they're noticing uh, more and more concern around why people are disinvesting at certain stages without any logical reason. And they suspect that there could be pressure from family members. Now, in some instances, you know, an elderly parent might simply want to help, um, you know, an adult child who's got debt to clear it down while they can. But nonetheless, the advisor needs to be very alert to whether or not financial abuse is occurring. Uh, what was commonly asked of me is, absolutely, I'm spotting it, but what do I do about it? 
And they're the kind of things that, uh, Catherine, we, we're trying to now work through with working parties, practitioners who are prepared to give up some of their time to share good practice that creates, again, um, a safe pair of hands, but an environment for adopters of the charter to come to and pull on resource uh, for firms who, uh, you know, I've come across a number of firms who already do a huge amount of work, who are now prepared to share some of their work with the broader community. It doesn't, it doesn't erode competitive, quite the opposite. Actually, it starts to unify standards. And um, this really is all about building trust as there's over 8 million or more consumers in the UK who don't really engage uh, with financial advice who need it, but just don't do it. The sad thing is they become even more vulnerable to scammers. Uh, so there's something that we've got to do. And that's why I said earlier, if we just get these things right, um, uh, it will lead to an incre increased demand for the kind of services that um, our adopters and, and firms like yourself mm. uh, and your clients do. So um, if you go onto our library, anyone who wants to go on there, there is um, Southern Wealth. Uh, we've just launched, um, although it hasn't hit the press yet, but we've got an excellent guide on lasting powers of attorney. Uh, and that's a really, really important area for the financial advice sector. Um, we've had some expert opinion in from uh, a legal expert, Caroline Belinska, who again sits on our board to give us that breadth of uh, experience and knowledge. Uh, there's another working party led by Tony Miles, uh, who's a director of Carebox uh, and a director of, um, of the task force who's creating, uh, who are creating a, a guide on divorce. Right. Um, because that's clearly another huge area that, that creates a vulnerable circumstance that, that needs addressing. And of course, financial advice and insurance can play a key role in addressing those vulnerable circumstances. So it's, you know, our purpose name is how do we help more and more professionals across the sector have a go-to place that they can take out the information? Not exclusively, we, you know, we don't expect it to be the place that everyone goes to, but actually where, where would you go if you want to know um, the basis of good practice around theft and fraud within families or sudden wealth and what the potential issues are that I need to think about. So I think for all of us, sharing good practice is, a, is an obvious thing that many, you know, I've heard people across the profession talk about for years. It's great to, to share experiences because we learn something every time we talk to each other. So it's the same thing. The more conscious we are yeah. of the fact that government and regulators are concerned about the, the increasing level of vulnerability uh, of the public, uh, and that's why we are seeing things like consumer duty, which really tries to pull everything together, whether it's TCF, uh, vulnerability, et cetera. Um, and I think we're already there. I think the frustration that I often find for a lot of people is they're not sure whether they're doing the right thing or not. Yeah. But obviously they, you know, uh, in some of my conversations with regulators, not just in the UK, but in other countries, you know, I often used to challenge them on what their primary purpose was. Um, and often it, it, it made them stop and think. And I said, well, look, you know, as leading the, the, the sector's largest professional body for financial advice in the UK, mine is really simple. Like we've adopted a, a Royal Charter, which is about raising public confidence and trust in our members. Mm. Now, to do that, we've got to provide them with technical knowledge, you know, improve competence through technical understanding, but also CPD guidance. And importantly, we've got to socialise with each other around cultural behaviour. So if we use the long, wrong language, it doesn't mean to say we have any intent to do the wrong thing, but actually the perception is we're just in this for ourselves, not really for our clients. So yeah. I, I was creating that framework. And to a regulator, you say, so what, what is your purpose? So ours is to try to improve public confidence and trust uh, in our members, in the wider profession. What's yours? And it was interesting because the purpose of good regulation is to improve public confidence and trust in the sectors that they're regulating. But often regulators unconsciously try to demonstrate that you can be confident because they're there taking action. So the, but if the only thing the public see is the regulators taking action against the minority who do the wrong thing, then actually it absolutely distorts the perception, erodes trust in the sector and is likely to deter uh, members of the public making the right decision to seek out uh, either the appropriate protection 
that they need or the level of advice uh, that they should be getting. So we, we were working carefully with regulators, uh, say not just here, but internationally. In fact, I've had a, an invite from one to, uh, to speak uh, abroad on, on vulnerability, but it's how we now translate that into everyday language. So I think the yeah. important thing for me, for financial advisors, they are much further ahead than they realise, but often they're massively frustrated because they think regulation is making life over bureaucratic, extremely costly. And whilst that is true, because regulation often does work to the lowest common denominators, so by definition, if it's the lowest, you've got to accept that not everyone's guilty of mm. the issues you're trying to address, but you're forcing everyone to have to address them. But I think it's because sometimes we haven't shown that we're, we go to the regulator and say, tell us what it is that you're worried about and let us work out with the, the profession what it is we can do to address it. Now, what we could then start to see is less regulatory reform to force behaviours because often trying to force behaviours can drive the wrong outcomes. It makes and it increases the risk of vulnerability in the community. So mm -hmm. there are interesting conversations that we're having with both uh, HM Treasury and uh, the FCA where we're trying to help their thinking that what they're doing could un have unintentional consequences of actually increasing vulnerable circumstances rather than reducing or addressing them. Now, you know, for some advisors, you know, they might see that as we're having a go at the regulator. And I guess to some extent we probably are, but we're just trying to make them conscious that with every good intent to deliver good consumer outcomes, there's a very big risk that regulators themselves are, in, uh, are increasing vulnerability through the fact that they're eroding confidence and trust. So there are interesting dynamics at the moment. And for me, with years of experience, is trying to bring into the fore uh, how we all often see, see life. And it's mm. not often in the, you know, it's a bit like consumers. You know, it always makes me smile when you say to a consumer, what's your capacity for loss? They go, oh, I don't want to lose anything. I've come to you to make money. Um, but of course, we've got to ask them. We've got to point out, you know, when we go through their, their, their attitudes, risk and, how the markets work. But of course, it's a counterintuitive question. What's your capacity for loss? Yeah. We also use terminology that, that isn't really consumer centric. And it, it, in the same way, we increase vulnerable uh, vulnerability uh, rather than actually reduce it because we, we make things technical. So you heard me earlier say that you know, the very first principle of the charter was recognising that we often can use technical jargon. Sometimes we can't avoid it. Mm. Um, you know, we just have to, to comply with the rules, whether we like it or not. So, uh, but in using that technical jargon, as many advisors know from a first-hand experience, the clients really sort of glaze over and they're not, they're not particularly interested, but we are duty-bound to go through it. And, and what the Charter is about is recognising how we deal with that specific vulnerability that it's a requirement that a client should know, um, but actually it's, it's a technicality that, that bamboozles them. Yeah, I was going to say from listening as well to like all your um, background <laughs> and everything, it was you know it's very clear that there is so many, uh, so many areas of experience that you have. There's so many interconnections of different areas that you've been to try to obviously to get where you are and to build what you are doing. And, um, and I think something that we've obviously been hearing a lot about in the, the industry the last couple of years as well is this concept of signposting. And you know I. To me, that probably is, again, probably one of those things where we're saying like a firm possibly already has strategies in place to help support them with vulnerability and that have maybe not specifically written it down or recognised that. I mean, for myself, I kind of see signposting as a process that helps in terms of ensuring that the vulnerability of a client is addressed. So as an example, so I, I purely work in protection insurance. So obviously I don't do investments or pensions or anything. And we have lots and lots of people who introduce to us who are in the mortgage space, who are other protection advisors, you know, again, pensions, investments, but they don't do, for, for quite a few of them, they don't do protection. So they've established and gone, I don't do this. I, I don't have the resources to do this. or I don't have the capacity um, or it's just not my thing. And so they've said, right, but that's not, that's not doing everything that I can do for this client. And what I need to do is find a firm, ourselves or potentially others, who can actually step in and go, right, you've done a brilliant job there. I'm going to step in and make sure that this vulnerability is addressed. And I think maybe sometimes that can sometimes be important and, and powerful for people to realize that, 
you know, when we're talking about vulnerabilities, you know, we are talking about a change of mindsets. And, but I, I, you know, I think people need to make sure they don't think of it as like, right, I'm going to get like this thing of like 50 things I need to do to suddenly make sure that we're completely on top of, you know, people who are vulnerable and this and that. And I'm going to need to suddenly start doing this. It can be as to answer some of the things, some of the, the concerns could just be as simple as saying, right, you know what? we're not addressing that vulnerability vulnerability internally because it's just not our key skill set. But that doesn't mean we can ignore it. We need to find someone else to do it. And I'm assuming that signposting is is going to be quite a a powerful tool in this. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, actually, the, um, you know, my career, in particularly running a big IFA business, I had to think of it the other way around about um, rather than introducing another task for someone, is actually how we could use um, referrals or signposting for a service that we don't provide as a business opportunity, uh, because it did often uh, increase the interest on, you know, if you could do something that um, just in your normal course of action, if you referred someone to a service that you didn't provide yourself, that you could benefit it, it, it often captured interest. Now, most advisors actually then started to feel that it was the right thing to do. So they then realized that, yes, the remuneration, the additional uh, business opportunity was great, but at the same time, actually, it did make me feel good because I was forgetting that I have a duty to spot needs, uh, whether I can fulfill them or not through the service I provide, but certainly then to have relationships with others who might be able to fulfill that gap that I can't fill. So I think that's a really, really important uh, role that we all have to play. We do need specialists in our, our market. You know, as you gather in focus on protection, it is such an important, you know, in, in my life when I started under the hierarchy of needs, it was the number one. Well, of course, as investments became uh, more relevant, of course, first of all, we had to make sure the client had an emergency fund in place. Yeah. But, you know, even that language has gone now. You know, so the fact that we went into COVID with huge amounts of low resilience and people with no real emergency fund behind them, because there's no conscious awareness of the importance of having an emergency fund or even categorising it as something and why you need it. Uh, Protection and understanding why protecting uh, is, is one of the most important aspects of financial planning. I guess the flip side for many IFAs that I've spoken to, of course, they don't believe that there's often a huge need other than maybe inheritance acts planning for protection within their stereotypical uh, client bank. But um, what we are seeing is more and more advisors are realising that what service do you provide to the family? So when we talk about intergenerational wealth transfer, how vulnerable is your clients, your valued clients, family? And what do you do about it? You're an expert on hand. And what do you do? So it's really pleasing to hear more and more firms are now starting to think probably from the threat of uh, the potential intergenerational wealth drain uh, that may not stay with their firm. Actually, are now starting to think, actually, how do I offer a free consultation once a year to adult members of my client's family uh, where protection might be one of the key elements of the initial advice. So I do think we have a duty to do that. On the flip side, of course, not just advice services. And, uh, um, you know, we are doing lots of signposting. Again, on our website, where uh, more and more doctors are saying, if I spot this, what do I do about it? Um, In some instances, it's awkward for an advisor to do everything about it. So, for example, if you're spotting financial abuse within a family, you need to address it but you may not be the expert that can give the guidance, but you do need to spot it. And then actually it's having some way you can signpost the client to, um, to suggest that they might want to, to go to this source who may be able to give them some, you know, some specific guidance on any concerns or issues they have. So I think what we're also trying to do is build up that confidence that we can't necessarily be the expert for everything, but where we spot things firsthand what do we do about it? Because we're not the expert, do we just walk away? It's a bit like, you know, spotting a scam. Yeah. Do, we, do we just go, that's obviously a scam and do nothing about it? Or do we consciously say, actually, I'm going to report that to the FCA um, via their scam website? Yeah. And again, again, it's that consciousness about, well, I can't really do anything about it. Well, actually, you can. 
But but I think in fairness, what we've recognised is that's easy to say, um, but actually when people are really super busy, when they've already got enough on their plate, we, I think, feel duty-bound that we've got to do more to help the profession to make their life a bit easier by providing them with an effective resource pool, uh, guidance or, or signposting, uh, which makes life a bit, bit easier for them. Because sometimes that's all we need to do. We don't have to give someone advice on things that we're not the expert on, but actually it's pretty good when you, you feel good about, uh, I don't do protection, but I know an expert who does, for example. Exactly. And also vice versa. You know, I do protection, but I, I don't do the others, but I know an expert in private, you know, private medical insurance and, you know, investments and pensions. This is something that, you know, becomes mutually, there's often a very big mutual network that suddenly starts developing. And as you say, you know, there can sometimes be the, some commercial opportunities there as well. Um, I think, did you say as well that on the website, there's potentially some case studies or you, do you have some sort of like clear examples for us of where, where advisors have really stepped in and been able to to really help people. Yeah, I think there's lots of great examples of help where advice steps in. <laughs> but we're just building that on our library at the at the moment. So case studies are are often a really good. Uh, it's a bit like culture, Catherine. You know, when I was leading personal finance society, and, and of course one of the underlying principles was that there that you had to subscribe to the code of professional ethics. Yeah. And of course, everyone would say yes, but you know, who can cite what's in the code of professional ethics? Because when we thought about it, of course, people will subscribe to a code of ethics because they're ethical. Yeah. Um, and you can't be more ethical. You're either ethical or you're not ethical. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a bit like you can't be more honest. You're either honest or you're not honest. Um, so we had to then start turning ethical dilemmas into case studies, which then helped to bring uh, ethical, you know, a code of ethics to, to life. It, became, it made it real. So in a very similar way with vulnerability, you know, we already spoke earlier that, um, uh, you know, a lot of advisors in the past wouldn't have recognised that doing the right thing at the point of advice and checking suitability and affordability made it suitable. But actually, it was not asking the question about, are you planning any major change in the next two or three years that could affect your ability to fund, uh, you know, your investment plan or pay your insurance premiums? Um, Because had they bothered finding out, they could have avoided the client having to lapse the contract two years later when a major life change that had been planned happens and the client financially loses. So... Yeah. You know, we wouldn't necessarily think that's a vulnerability the, the regulator expects us to deal with. But I can tell you in the, in the 90s, things like uh, uh, sustainability was one of the key issues the regulator had rather than affordability. They could see that, you know, a lot of people might have been able to afford the 10-year term at the point at which it was sold to them. Mm. But it was evident that the life change event had been planned at that time. And if the advisor had taken the trouble to just to... To question it, the client wouldn't have lost a load of money through lapsing. Now, the same in your particular field of expertise is protection was one of those big areas where, you know, lapse rates, um, persistency started to become a major focus, as you you mm. will know. Um, and when I was a director of, of a big life company, you know, persistency rates was obviously one of the major K- KPIs. Absolutely. So, yeah, so that it's interesting, but, you know, we don't always see, we, we, we don't use, in a similar way that consumers struggle sometimes with our terminology, I think regulators, we've got to try to find a way as uh, a task force to work with regulators and policymakers to make their intentions become relevant language for the sector, yeah. rather than, you know, often there can be a disconnect. Um, the regulator and the sector actually are a lot more closely aligned than I think many financial advisors would realise. In fact, I've had many that have doubted me when I've said, listen, they know exactly what's going on, but they can't always share. Yeah. So you think they don't know. Well, they look at lots of firms like yours, lots of advisors like you, so they know exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. But they're not particularly good at sharing it because the, the regulator themselves feel vulnerable that if they share what they believe is good practice, 
you'll adopt it, but it may not be appropriate for your business or your clients. So, so they often can come across a bit unhelpful mm. or aloof. Um, but we as a task force can, should be able to translate some of those expectations into tangible case studies, examples, or terminology that becomes relevant. So, you know, your question about case studies, we are going to use them a lot more to try to turn things like uh, vulnerable, uh, vulnerable dilemmas or circumstances into reality. And, and just reiterate, every single client that comes to an advisor has a vulnerable circumstance. If the only one they've got at that particular point in time is temporarily, they're dealing with someone who knows far more about uh, subject matter than they do and therefore yep. have no option but to rely on them. So that's a huge responsibility and privilege that we have often yeah. when people have no option but to just trust what we tell them. But that is a huge vulnerability at the same time. So I think if we, if yes. we just respect those, um, we start to see that these rules aren't really about rules. They're what we normally do. We, we would expect to treat our customers fairly. If there was no regulation, a lot of firms would still do what they do. They would still have checklists. They would still have conscious awareness sessions about are we really doing the right thing? How do we test that? Just because no one's rung us up and complained, does that really mean we're still delivering a great service and everyone's happy? Yeah. No, absolutely. So in terms of the uh, Financial Vulnerability Task Force, so you have a website, is that the best way for people to get in touch and to be signing up and checking that they kind of are doing what the charter is hoping that they do? Yeah, absolutely. And we're, we're just at the next phase of, of development. So uh, there's going to be quite a lot of changes to uh, the website soon. But the, the important thing is that it does give, uh, so there's also very useful resources on there at the moment. There's lots of uh, signposts to different organisations that can be useful for advisors. Um, but the key part of, of what we wanted to achieve is to give individuals and firms a place where they could actually stimulate their own thought process around what they do. So again, I, I just reiterate, sharing resource, good practice and ideas isn't about what we do. It's really about what you do. You know, coaching people over my career uh, was more about stimulating what they already thought, the ideals they already had, the beliefs they already had. And that actually was often getting the best out of them rather than adopting you know, my, my views or, or my strategies. Uh, and I think in a very similar way, that's what we're trying to do here. But actually, how do you do it without visibility? So uh, you will see for those that adopt the, the charter, interestingly enough, we're getting more firms who adopt the charter now want people within their firm to adopt the charter mm. because it becomes a visible and conscious awareness that they're committing to something. Yes. Um, and equally, it means that they get, you know, a nice colourful logo that they can actually put on their business cards, on their stationery or on their websites without detracting from the firm's own marketing brand, uh, et cetera. Yes. So, for example, it's not the task force logo that's used. It's the, uh, the safe pair of hands, the, the charter, the financial yeah. vulnerability charter that firms can adopt and use. That's brilliant. Well, thank you so much for, for joining me, Keith, and for going through all of this. It's been really, really insightful. And I'm really hoping that lots of people go and check out the website. I believe the website is www.fvtaskforce.com. So just for anybody with my northern accent that can pick them up, that is um, foxtrotvictortaskforce.com. And um, next time I'm going to be back with Matt Van and we're going to be looking at insurance options for people that are working in the armed forces. And if you'd like a reminder of the next episode, please do just drop me a message on social media or visit the website practical-protection.co.uk. And please don't forget that if you've listened to this as part of your work, you can claim a CPD certificate on the website too. Thanks to our sponsors, the Octo members. So thank you so much, Keith. You're very welcome, Catherine. It's been a pleasure.